1: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to grow in holiness and to learn our faith a little bit more. Bishop Sheen had a great love for the soldier and, of course, was very uh, dedicated to helping soldiers with uh, their prayer lives. And I think of that great little booklet, The Wartime Prayer Book, that uh, many of you may have in your own possession I know that hundreds of thousands of these copies of these books have been given to the military all over the world, and so uh, a great little devotional. And so today uh, on this program, Bishop Sheen will uh, give a reflection entitled, The Glory of the Soldier, and uh, of course, uh, lots of powerful insights in that program, and then we'll follow that up with a catechism lesson uh, from the catechism series that Bishop Sheen developed many years ago and uh, the lesson today is entitled the law of love the total commitment and um, we need to give a total commitment to christ uh, because he is our all and i cannot uh, thank god enough for giving us the gift of his mother uh, at the foot of the cross to the world when he said to uh, saint john woman behold your son son behold your mother At that moment, we became children of Mary. And so, as children of Mary, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection entitled, The Glory of the Soldier. Friend,
2: we received many letters this week wanting to know what happened to that dead horse in the bathroom and how we got rid of it. Well, it was very simple to get rid of it. We just took the plug out of the bathtub. As we announced last week, our subject tonight is the glory of the soldier. And under soldier, of course, we include everyone in the Marines, the foot soldiers, those who fight in the air, sailors, everyone, men and women, who are engaged in the armed forces. Just before the show, we were giving out the second series of our telecast. You know, we do not have them written out beforehand, so we take them down. After the telecast finished, we take them down to the kinescope. And uh, someone noticed in the crew tonight that the little angel is very favorable to the sailors. I just noticed tonight, if you notice that the, uh, the little angel here is wearing a sailor hat. The difference that you see between my angel, he loves all the armed forces, Between my angel and the sailor is that the sailor, whenever he sees a schooner, such as is in this picture, he drinks it, and my angel just dances when he sees one. There are all kinds of stories, as you know, told about the sailors and the Marines and the men in the Air Force. For example, I suppose the sailors have constantly been maligned by saying they have a girl in every port. Now, that is not true, because they haven't been in every port. have been to Davenport, (laughs) the soldier has had a great and varied history, and the origin of the word is interesting. mercenary and sold themselves out to the highest bidder in the 15th or 16th century, they were given their pay, and in French it was sold, and hence the name in French became soldat, from which we derive the word soldier. There's a world of difference between the soldier, of course, of the free world, our democracy, and the soldier of the Soviet world. You're looking at my angel because he cleaned the board? (laughs) The soldier of the slave world, that is to say of the communist world, is necessarily bent on offense, because the whole communist philosophy is dedicated to world revolution. Once you are men of that particular uh, type of civilization, you necessarily make them offensive soldiers, because one thing you can't do with bayonets is sit on them. The communists send them conquering throughout the world. Soldiers of a democratic country are quite different. Soldiers in a democracy come into being very much like locks might come into a village. Here's a thousand homes in a village. Every man is friendly with his neighbor. There are no locks on windows, no bars on doors. Everyone is free to come and go in any house in the neighborhood. One night a thief breaks in. The next morning, a thousand locks have to be purchased. Now what happens with there's deep in the world that's the reason democracies have to arm. The greatest tribute that can be paid to soldiers is to recall that they are always spoken of well in the scriptures. In the Old Testament great soldiers are praised like Joshua David and Gideon. In the New Testament whenever an individual is mentioned it's always in terms of praise. I believe the reason is that when a civilization like the Roman began to rot, the putrefaction starts at the center. Which means that off at the periphery, in the military, in the armed forces, there are still those remnants of respect for law, and decency and order, which preserve civilization. And that is why the soldiers that are found on the outposts of the Roman Empire in gospel times are men to be praised. Two great characteristic notes of soldiers are found in the Gospels, found throughout history. The first note of the great soldier is sympathy. And the second is a spirit of sacrifice. First of all, sympathy. One soldier does not make an army any more than one swallow makes a summer. He's committed to live in community and so he develops the spirit of friendliness with his fellow man. Then in addition to that, he has to travel very often to other lands. And these great floods of humanitarianism wipe away all the barriers and obstructions of race and of nation and of color and of class And he begins to understand what Alexander the Great told his soldiers in Persia that God is the common father of all men. The soldier begins to see as he goes into other lands that all people are one, and all made of one blood. This sympathy begets the humility in the soldier. When a man is alone, he can be proud of himself. When he's with others, he's much more humble fly on the nose of the cameraman looks very large. In the theater it looks small. The man is, is alone and by himself he can be an egotist, but when he's in an army and in another world he becomes very humble. And that explains the sympathy and the humility of these soldiers. One of them that was mentioned in the gospel, the centurion of Kapar see how sympathetic he was and how sympathetic he had to be to win the reputation that he enjoyed after all he belonged to this great power of Rome that was sending its eagles throughout the world he comes into a conquered people naturally he was unpopular should have been or the Romans were in the land of the Jews very much like Soviets are in China or in Poland yet he was kindly and sympathetic and one day came to our Lord and said that his servant was sick. The servant of that Roman soldier was probably a slave. Caesar once complained that he wept the death of a servant. But this man is interested in the life of his servant. He comes to our Lord and asks that the servant be healed. And the Jewish elders, were struck with the sympathy and kindness of the man, went to our Lord and they gave two arguments why he should be helped. Imagine two arguments in favor of this Roman soldier. The first was, he loves our race. How gentle he had to be to win that appellation. And secondly, he built for us a synagogue. He was humble, too. Oh, so very humble. Because he said to our Lord, I do not want you to enter under my roof. You need not come to my house. I have men under me, because I am a man of authority. I say to one, go, and he goeth. Come, and he cometh. To another, do this, and he doth it. Therefore he suggested to our Lord that merely the words of his omnipotent lip would be enough to cure the servant. And the servant was cured at that hour. The soldier was kind and sympathetic and these days when those who follow the Savior reach the moment of most intimate union with him there wells up at the moment of communion on the lip of a devout Christian the words of a soldier. Lord, I am not worthy. This sympathy we find in our American soldiers throughout the world. We know what they are doing in mission lands, for example. The aid they are giving to our leprosaria, to our hospitals, to our homes for the aged. How they are helping the orphan, and the refugees throughout the world. Not only our own soldiers. Let me tell you this story about a communist soldier. One of our missionary sisters was telling me just the other day when she was in prison in China for a couple of years, she contracted malaria. The communists refused to give her any water. Her throat was like a blazing fire. She said to the communist soldier nearby, I'm dying. He said, good. We will not have to feed you. All we have to do is bury her. He said, give me some tea. He was making a pot of tea. the The communist soldier said, why should I give you tea? For you are an enemy. And then his mouth became a crater of hate and a volcano of blasphemy. And as he cursed her and accused her of being a spy and an agent of an imperialist power, amidst all of his cursing and blasphemies, he moved over to this dying sister, and poured some tea into her tin cup and saved her life. But he was safe. Reported to the party and demoted. The point that I want to bring out is that the natural sympathy of a soldier overcame the hardness even of communist philosophy and he broke the bonds of all dialectical materialism to prove that a soldier is a man of sympathy and love. Then humility. Would you like to see a letter I got from a soldier the other day that indicates humility? He passed me by in the street. Failed to see me. He wrote this letter. The soldier says, Dear Bishop Sheen, last evening at the Alfred Smith dinner, I was told that while I was passing through the streets of New York yesterday, you stopped at a street corner to greet me. I regret I failed to see you, but I do assure you that I am more than complimented by your friendly thoughtfulness. I would have valued the opportunity to have stopped my car, however briefly, to chat for a moment with personal regard. Would you like to know the name of the soldier? Dwight D. Eisenhower. And I said, in America, when the president passes a friend on the street and through no fault of his own fails to recognize him, he sends a letter of greeting. That is democracy. In Russia, when the dictator passes a friend on the street without recognizing him, that means he's marked for liquidation. That is communism. (laughs) The second quality of the soldier... His sacrifice. Sacrifice in times of peace because he has to leave his home, his loved ones. Because he has to go through the long routine of preparation. And in addition to that, when there was no excitement for battle, no spur to action, he still has to go through the indelicacies of Barrack's life. And then in time of war soldier is a man of sacrifice because on the battlefield he does not live for himself. He does not die for himself. He lives and he dies for others. His life is characterized by a beautiful vicariousness. Surrender of self for others. We find this in a great soldier too that is mentioned in the gospel. Here is a centurion. He had charge of a hundred soldiers. 160th of a Roman legion. The Roman legion amounted to 6,000 men. He was sent out this particular day to execute a batch of criminals. He had done it a hundred times before. It was the old Roman method of putting men to death. He knew all about it. He went through with it, was struck a bit for the fact that one who was crucified, as soon as the nails hit his hands, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then he noticed, too, the death did not seem to come to him, that he went out to meet it, and he died, speaking in a loud voice. As if he were giving up his own life, which he did, saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The change came over that particular soldier. He was seeing now not the circumstances of death. As men are generally interested today in the circumstances of death, as they follow murder mysteries and read detective stories, But this soldier became for the moment tremendously interested in the significance of death and all that it implied. He began to see that here was someone who was giving his life for another. And then this soldier made a public affirmation of his faith. He said, indeed, this was the Son of God. He was the first there are no atheists in the And the spirit of sacrifice has passed over into the lives of our soldiers. We know a hundred stories we could tell you of men who risked their own lives and some even have died just to save the one that they call a buddy. And you remember Joyce Kilmer, one of the great soldiers of World War I, how he translated everything that happened to him in war into the scene which this Roman soldier saw on the hill of Calvary. He would first of all complain about his army life, and then he would think of that great soldier, his vicarious death, He gave himself for the world. He said... My shoulders ache beneath my pack. I easy across upon his back. I march with feet that burn and smart. Red holy. I dare not lift a hand to clear my eyes of salty tears that sear. And shall my fickle soul forget my agony of bloody sweat? My rifle hand is sick and numb from thy pierced palm. red rivers come Lord thou hast suffered more for me and all the hosts of land and sea. Then let me render back again the millionth of thy gift. Amen. The poem of a soldier who sacrificed himself for his country. Why not then recognize their great value we wonder why is it that in times of war we praise the sacrifice, the self-forgetfulness, the self-abnegation, and the fearlessness of our soldiers on the battlefield. And then in time of peace, Call such sacrifice and such discipline womanly virtues. Why do we do it? Why is it that in times of war we commend the soldier for obedience to his orders, for his oath of fealty, for the fulfilment of his missions? for obedience to all of his commissions and then in time of peace have little respect for the same obedience will not put it into our schools and into our homes and into our national life with the result that we pay the terrible penalty of juvenile delinquency. Why is it that in time of war we tell our soldiers that they must be ready if need be to give their lives for the preservation of the liberty of our country and then in time of peace we say it is asking too much of any man to give an answer to the question are you a loyal American? Are you a communist? There are no fifth amendment on battlefields behind which our soldiers may protect their lives. Shall we therefore be ashamed in peace? However, we are so proud in war. Rather, let us put on the breath plate of justice, the shield of faith, carrying the sword of the spirit, marching with courage under the great God who is the Lord of hosts and under the protection of a woman who is as invincible as an army drawn up in battle array. Then we shall preserve our country, our traditions, our soldiers and our America.
1: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at one 357 4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to uh, listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I love that uh, presentation about our soldiers, and uh, let us continue to pray for our soldiers as they uh, keep the peace all over the world and uh, serve our country. And so now Bishop Sheen will give us a catechism lesson. Uh, He's been speaking about the commandments, and he'll continue to uh, speak on that theme. And so uh, please sit back and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
2: Peace be to you. In treating the commandments, it was said that the first three treat of our duties to God and the last six of our duties to neighbor. In between the two is the fourth commandment, which is honor thy father and thy mother. This commandment has been placed in between the two because it is a bond between both God and neighbor. The justice that we owe our parents is very close to the justice that we owe to God and it is also related to the justice we owe our neighbor. After God, it was our parents who gave us life. And this fourth commandment, therefore, is the commandment which not only links the two but which also provides best of all for the future of our civilization. Napoleon was once asked, when does the education of a child begin? And he answered, 20 years before the child is born, in the education of the mother. There is much truth to this, because the parents take the place of God in the home. A child is so much clay in the hands of the parent. And how that child is molded will decide the future of it. When God gave to the parents a child, he made a crown for that child in heaven. Woe be to the parents who do not fulfill the high destiny invocation of that child. Hence one of the gravest dangers facing children can be the example of their parents. Delinquency begins at home. Parental delinquency becomes juvenile delinquency. The divine law, therefore regarding the two Has been clearly put in sacred scripture. There is a double relationship. In the epistle to the Colossians, we read first of all of the relationship that children should have to parents, then later on, the relation that parents have to children. First of all, children in relationship to parents. Children must be obedient to their parents in every way. It is a gracious sign of serving the Lord. In other words, it is accounted as obey God himself. Now the parents in relationship to children. And you parents must not Rouse your children to resentment or you will break their spirits. There must therefore be that gentleness that characterizes the mercy of God toward us. What a beautiful lesson of obedience is given to us in the divine child at Nazareth. There is no evidence that he ever gave to Mary and Joseph just the nominal right to command. Other the scripture says he lived there in subjection to them. Imagine, God subject to man. God before whom the angels and principalities and powers tremble is subject to Mary. And to Joseph for Mary's sake. Here are the two great miracles of humility and exaltation the God man obeying a woman, and a woman commanding the God man. The very fact that he became subject to her endows her with power, and that obedience lasted for 30 years. And by this long span of voluntary obedience, he revealed that the fourth commandment is the bedrock of family life. In a larger way, how else could the primal sin of disobedience against God be undone, except by the obedience in the flesh of the very God who was once defied? It was Lucifer who said, I will not obey and even caught up that echo. Down the ages, its inflection traveled, worming its way into the nook and crevices of every family where there was gathered a father and mother and a child. Here is something to remember. As parents surrender their legitimate authority and primary responsibility to their children, the state begins to take over. When the parents no longer bring up their children in the love and fear of God and the children become juvenile delinquents, then the state takes over the home and takes over the children. That is why obedience in the home is the foundation of obedience in the commonwealth. in each instance conscience submits to a trustee of God's authority if it be true that the world has lost its respect for authority it is only because it has lost it first in the home and as we said before as the home loses this authority then the state begins to become tyrannical There is a bond established between the home and the state. It was democracy that put man on a pedestal. It was feminism that put woman on a pedestal. But neither democracy nor feminism can live a generation unless a child is first put on a pedestal, and such is the significance of Nazareth. How our Lord warned, too, about caring for the child. As he put it, and if anyone hurts the conscience of one of these little ones that believe in me, he had better have been drowned in the depths of the sea with a millstone hung about his neck. It is not to be thought, however, that obedience in the home does not include every other kind of obedience. That commandment embraces what is known as the virtue of pietas or piety, and it involves family and neighbor and the state. All authority comes from God, and this commandment obliges us to obey civil authority. Remember when Pilate boasted that he had power to condemn our blessed Lord? Our Lord said that he would not have the power unless it came to him from above. So, sacred scripture tells us every soul must be submissive to its lawful superiors. Authority comes from God only, and all authorities that hold sway are of God's ordinance. It is very beautiful to realize that both Saint Paul and Saint Peter asked for obedience to civil rulers, even though the civil ruler was Nero, who would put them both to death. You will also find that those who love God are always the great patriots. Whenever there begins to be a decline of patriotism in a country there was always a decline of belief in God. That brings us now to the other commandments, the fifth to the tenth. Our blessed Lord said that we were to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, how do we love ourselves? Well, we love ourselves very much. We enter into a room, we look for the best chair. We do not buy the clothes that will look most unattractive upon us. We choose desserts with considerable discretion and regard to taste. We like prey. In fact, we love ourselves very much. But there are also some things we do not like about ourselves. We do not hate ourselves when we are boorish and loud and insulting to others or make excessive demands upon our neighbor or when we tell untruths that hurt our friends. You see, therefore, we can love ourselves and hate ourselves. What is it that we love in ourselves? For we love what is good in ourselves and we hate what is bad in ourselves. Applying that to our neighbor, we love what is good in them, and we hate what is sinful in them. So we love the sinner, and we hate the sin. We love the neighbor as a spiritual self, but we do not necessarily love him as a carnal self. Our blessed Lord, therefore, tied together love of himself, love of neighbor, and love of ourselves. There could, therefore, be two great errors. One is to love God without loving our neighbor, and the other would be to love our neighbor without loving God. We are often invited to take part in brotherhood weeks, brotherhood causes. There's much talk of the brotherhood of man. All that is very good and true, but how can we be brothers unless we have a common father? To leave the fatherhood of God out of the brotherhood of man is to make us all a race of illegitimate children. The love of neighbor is not be standardized solely upon our love of ourselves, but rather upon the way that our Lord has loved us. And that is the way he put it: "This is my commandment that you should love one another as I have loved you. But who is my neighbor? The one who lives next door? Probably, particularly if he be an enemy. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was not the one who lived next door, but the one who was farthest away who turned out to be the neighbor. We can never tell in advance who is our neighbor. That is to say the neighbor involved in love your neighbor. The neighbor can be a friend, just as our blessed Lord was a friend of Lazarus, and the neighbor could be an enemy. As was the case of the man who was injured on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The neighbor is the one who is in need. As regards interior esteem, interior value, the saints certainly have more of our esteem than do sinners. But on this earth, charity must be guided by the greatness of misery. First spiritual misery, then corporal. If there are two who are in misery and and both are equally needy, then we can give to the one who is closest to us either by blood or by friendship. We said that the neighbor can also be the the enemy. And our blessed Lord gave us this counsel, but I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute and insult you. Love of enemies is actually the touchstone to prove whether or not our love is truly divine. Hence our blessed Lord said that before we bring a gift to him at the altar we should go and be reconciled to our brother if there's any conflict between us. And our Lord did not say if you have something against your brother he rather said if your brother has something against you. Now how can we be related to our neighbor? Well by mind by body and then, as regards things. First of all, our mind. We can be bound up with our neighbor in our thoughts, desires, resolutions, the way we speak to them, the way we listen to them. Then, we can be related to our neighbor in body. We may work with them, we may work for them, and then, too, there can be pleasure as regards the communication of body with body. Finally, we can be bound to our neighbor as regards things, money, land, and property, the whole economic order. We are taking these three, mind, body, and mind, because they are, or rather, things. Because they are the sources when they are disordered and perverted of the three major kinds of sin. Pride, which refers to the mind. Lust or impurity, which refers to the body. And finally, avarice, which refers to things. Now let us take up our relationship to the neighbor as regards our thoughts. Our mind. Here we deal with Temptations, because they are wholly in the mind. There are three elements to a temptation. Suggestion, delight, consent. You cannot sin in your mind until there is consent. And the consent comes from the will, not from the feeling. First, the suggestion may come from the eye, the ear, the memory, the imagination... a suggestion to sin just as he was tempted by the word of Satan. Then secondly, there can be delight and that can even be physical. We can feel the repercussion of the thought in our body. It does not make any difference how long that feeling may endure. There is no sin until is consent. I will to consent to that thought, or I will not to consent to it. We are not therefore to think that we are bad simply because we are tempted. We are tempted because we're human. It is only the consent which is wrong. Now our relationship as regards the mind to our neighbor obliges us therefore to speak the truth. And why the truth? Well, simply because no other moral virtue can grow up without it. And furthermore, because in the Sacrament of Confirmation we receive the spirit of truth. And also because the membership in the mystical body it becomes more intimate, as St. Paul tells us, when we are bound together by truth. And the reason we are asked, therefore, to be Truthful is simply because the whole incarnation is truth. Remember that the word became flesh. In other words, the inner word or the thought of God became flesh, became externalized. And so too, as the Son is the image of the Father, so what I say externally, with my lips, must be the image of what is in my mind internally. Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Therefore, all sins against truth are forbidden like lying and boasting, defaming character, injuring another's good name, rash judgment, falsely accusing others, denying our faith, even under persecution, hypocrisy, and then even resolving to do something that is evil even when we are unable to carry it out. One can commit murder by thinking about it, resolving to do it, even though the thought never passes into act. That is why the commandments say, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Our blessed Lord said, Any man looking... After a woman and lusting after her hath already committed adultery with her in his own heart. See, the church does not wait. Or rather, our blessed Lord does not wait until a thought passes out into act. He is not interested just in hygiene. He keeps clean all of the motivations of action. All of the little rivers that run into the ocean are kept and the ocean itself will be kept clean. Next, we come to the body, our body and also bodies of others. Now, the reason the body is deserving of respect is because, well, in the natural order, it is bound with the soul, constitute a person, and in the supernatural order, becomes a temple of God because we are in the state of grace. So, sacred scripture says to us, I appeal to you by God's mercies to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to God and worthy of his acceptance. I believe that we already said before, very often people who go in for excessive luxury of body are very often naked on the inside. The more the soul is clothed with virtue, the less need there is of external display. So we have to take care of our body, and we do so not just for biological reasons, but we do it in order to better maintain our spiritual moral life. Now, this does not mean that sickness is incompatible with holiness. It is not. Sometimes sickness diminishes temptation, unites us with the passion of our Lord, and assures us also of the promise of glory if we suffer in his name. You have to remember that every sin in the mind can be also an assault, not only on the mind, but also on the body. Therefore, as regards our own body, there will be no such thing as taking our own life because that belongs to God. For a woman, there will be no such thing as abortion. There will be no taking the lives of uncurable persons. There will be Be no evil thoughts or desires against the neighbor, and be no solitary sins, no drunkenness, and all the other sins against the body which you will find mentioned in the prayer book. And as there will be no sins against our own body, so not against the body of the neighbor, like murder, abortion, adultery, and the prevention of the fruit of love. Finally, we are related to our neighbor by things. Private property is the external guarantee of human freedom. The right to property is personal, but the use of property is social. Hence, we are bound to our neighbor. In charity, to give alms, superfluities of the rich are the necessities of the poor. Our blessed Lord said, I was sick and you visited me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. There will therefore be also, as regards things, great charity, particularly to the missions of the church in pagan lands. As the Holy Father said, this is the charity that surpasses all other charities, as heaven, earth, and eternity time. All sins, therefore, is regarded. Regarding things will be avoided. There will be no stealing. If there be stealing, there will be the restitution of what was stolen. If we do not know the person from whom something was stolen, then we will give a similar amount of charity. We will repair for unjust damage. We will give a full work for a day's pay. There will be the payment by employers of a living wage. There will be no cheating, no cutting of corners. The sacred scripture says, thou shalt not carry two different weights in thy wallet, one heavy, one light. A just weight and a true thou shalt always use. All such knavery is hateful to the Lord thy God. He is the enemy of wrongdoing. And thus the
1: Hello, Rady Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at FultonSheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.FultonSheen.com and there you can enjoy the voice of the master preacher of Christ who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth Wisdom and humor. So please visit fultonsheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Well, my dear Radio Maria family, Our hour has come to an end, and I hope you enjoyed these reflections by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We ask you to join us next week, and so until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
0: You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith here on Radio Maria Canada.